ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning and welcome to AM. It's Wednesday the 10th of January. I'm Kim Landers coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Scientists have confirmed that 2023 was the hottest year on record. The European Union's Climate Agency says last year was in a league of its own, with warnings this year could be even warmer. Europe correspondent Isabella Higgins has more. Around the world, many watched the mercury climb last year. 2023 set many new temperature records. Some countries battled heat waves, fires and other extreme weather events. Now the European Union's climate agency has released data that shows on average global air temperature was 1.48 degrees warmer in 2023 than in the pre-industrial period. The deputy director of the EU's Copernicus Climate Change Service, Samantha Burgess, says greenhouse gases are having a major impact on our environment. Our climate is changing and it's changing drastically and not only is this recorded in record temperatures around the world but it's also recorded in the frequency and intensity of extreme events and what we've seen in 2023 was seven of the months of that year were the warmest months on record. EU scientists had widely expected this milestone. The director of the EU climate agency Carlo Bontempo says 2023 was significantly warmer than the previous record set in 2023. This has been a very exceptional year uh, climate-wise, even when compared to other very warm years. We, we cannot base this statement only on our data, but we are confident in, in, the, in the general uh, literature, scientific literature, that what we've seen in 2023 is very likely to be uh, one of the warmest, if not the warmest year uh, in the last 100,000 years. The Copernicus Climate Change Service says man-made global warming is the main driver, exacerbated this year by the naturally occurring El Niño weather pattern. In 2015, nearly 200 countries agreed at a UN summit in Paris to try and limit global warming to 1.5 degrees to avoid disastrous impacts. Carlo Bontempo warns the world looks set to get even hotter in the years ahead. It's basically certain that the average temperature over the next five, next five years will be warmer than the average temperature of the last five years. So there is a, there is a trend. So we can only expect this to, to go up. The BBC's climate editor, Justin Rollout, says the UN's COP28 climate convention held last year in Dubai offers some hope. The whole world came together and agreed to transition away from fossil fuels, tackling the main generator of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. There was also commitments to treble uh, renewable energy, wind and solar power by the capacity by 2030. And countries aren't obliged to do this, but it is significant they're making these promises publicly. Many scientists are again warning action is needed sooner rather than later. Isabella Higgins... While floods have been devastating for some parts of Australia, the wetter-than-expected summer has been a mixed blessing for farmers. The El Nino weather pattern was expected to deliver hotter, drier conditions. While the rain has disrupted the crop harvest in some areas, it's also helping other producers, as Kathleen Ferguson reports. On a dreary day in Gunnedah in northwestern New South Wales, buyers and agents gather around a pen of cattle being auctioned off. Scott Cooper works for Nutrien Ag in the town. He says the first market of the year was small but positive. I think there's a lot more confidence out there and it's evident in that rise 
in the market. But no matter what you, which way you look at it, if you've got a season and you've got seed, people will buy and they will trade. He says the recent rain in the district has been good for summer crops and has given farmers more fodder to keep and fatten cattle. The wet weather that we experienced before Christmas has been very beneficial. Like leading up until then, it, it was very dry. There's no no secret about that. We we didn't get sort of late winter rain. But for people like rural podcaster and occasional ABC radio presenter Kirsten Diprose, who lives in Victoria, the rain hasn't been as helpful. It's been wet and unable to dry off for weeks now. So I suppose originally coming into harvest, we thought we'd be done by Christmas. But for us, where I am, we've managed to harvest our canola crop and we've stopped because of the rain. She says it's been a tough mental shift after expecting hot and dry conditions. I think there is a bit of confusion about what farmers are being told and I think it comes down to how we communicate. I know that the Weather Bureau is doing the the best job it can do and I think it's a sign that climate change is incredibly unpredictable. The Bureau of Meteorology did declare an El Nino back in September, warning hot and dry conditions would hit Australia. Lyndon Ashcroft is a climate science lecturer and communicator from the University of Melbourne. She tells me no two El Ninos are the same. All El Nino events are different. Uh, An El Nino event doesn't always mean that we're going to get a dry summer. El Nino events have the biggest influence in eastern Australia in the springtime. And we did see a very dry period from August to October in 2023. Lyndon Ashcroft says it's been an interesting shift from thinking about bushfire preparedness to flood readiness. But she says summer isn't over and neither is the El Nino event. A lot of people have been preparing for a different kind of summer to what we've seen so far. I will note that summer's not over yet, though. There's still a few months to go and Australia's climate can change dramatically. She says the science and technology used to forecast the weather is always improving, but she says Australia's weather is volatile and with a changing climate, predicting what will happen can be more difficult. There are a lot of different elements that affect Australia's weather and climate and sometimes they just, you know, hit us for six and there's not much we can do about it, but uh, get prepared for the next one. Climate science lecturer Lyndon Ashcroft from the University of Melbourne, ending that report by Kathleen Ferguson. With supermarkets under fire for high food prices, the federal government's warning that it could intervene. It's appointed former Labor Cabinet Minister Craig Emerson to lead a review that's already underway into the Food and Grocery Code of Conduct, which regulates the relationship between supermarkets and their suppliers. Murray Watt is the Federal Minister for Agriculture. He's also the Minister for Emergency Management. Minister, you've been saying that given what farmers are getting paid, the prices charged by supermarkets don't pass the pub test. So how much cheaper do you expect prices to be? You're right, Kim. This is something that I've been raising publicly for some time now. Um, We just have seen too great a difference between the prices that farmers are receiving for their produce compared to what consumers are paying at the supermarket. Uh, particularly things like uh, livestock prices have been falling in Australia the last few months, but we're not seeing that adequately reflected at the supermarkets. We're also seeing it with fruit and vegetables as well. Um, So I think the important principle really that we want to see is that when prices are falling at the farm gate, prices should be falling at supermarkets as well. But how much by? What's going to pass the pub test? 
Well, I think it's not for the government to sort of stipulate exactly what prices supermarkets should be charging. But um, I think that, as I say, the principle we want to see is that while we are seeing dramatic falls at the farm gate, and we are seeing that at the moment, we should be seeing dramatic falls at the supermarkets as well. Uh, it's just not fair for consumers to be paying high prices for goods at supermarkets when farmers aren't receiving good prices at the farm gate. The government says it's going to look at every option to make sure customers get the best possible deal. Now, that may involve shifting from this industry-led code of conduct to government-mandated requirements. What could that actually mean? Yeah, well, the Food and Grocery Code, which is being reviewed, really is a tool to improve the level of transparency between supermarkets and their suppliers. At the moment, we do see supermarkets have a lot of market power when it comes to their negotiations with farmers and their other suppliers. And the voluntary arrangements we've got in place may not be doing enough uh, to ensure that supermarkets are being fully transparent. Uh, so that's one of the, the options under this review is that we move to a more mandatory system where supermarkets and big retailers do have to provide and are forced to provide much more information to their suppliers uh, and the public as to what they're paying for goods. Um, as I say, what we're trying to do is make sure that everyone gets a fair deal here, consumers at the supermarkets and farmers at the farm gate. So what sort of how, how would that intervention work? I mean, how would it how would it help by just uh, passing on more information? Well, I think one of the problems that I've certainly encountered as the agriculture minister is that when farmers go into negotiations with wholesalers or retailers, they often don't have a complete picture about what prices those uh, supply those wholesalers and retailers are paying to their competitors. Um, and it makes it very difficult for farmers to work out what kind of price they should be charging for their goods. It leaves them in a very weak bargaining uh, position and allows wholesalers and retailers to really drive down prices that they are paying for farmers by not being transparent with them. And then, of course, at the other end of the spectrum, consumers don't know what, what prices supermarkets are paying their suppliers. So no one really knows how much profiteering is going on uh, at, the, at the retail end at the expense of consumers. And that's what we really want to get on top of. The review into the Food and Grocery Code was announced nearly 100 days ago. The Nationals leader, David Littleproud, says the government's been dragging its feet. What took so long to appoint Craig Emerson to lead this review? Yeah, I've seen these comments from David Littleproud and unfortunately it's just more of the negativity that we seem to get every single day from the opposition. You know, I would point out that David Littleproud and their government didn't do anything about this for the 10 years that they were in government. Um, what we wanted to do is make sure that we do have an appropriate person with the right experience and the right track record on competition policy to head up this review. And I can't think of anyone better than Craig Emerson as a former competition minister who's got a long track record in driving these types of reforms. Minister, if I can turn to another one of your portfolios. In the past month, we've seen floods in central Victoria, a cyclone and floods in far north Queensland, a tornado on the Gold Coast. Is the government considering setting up a, a disaster relief force to help deal with the aftermath of things like this? Yeah, I think this summer is another example of the reality of climate change in action in Australia. Uh, over the last few years, we have seen extreme weather become much more common. And of course, the scientists tell us that that is likely to become more common still as a result of climate change. And we do need to be much more prepared as a country than we have been in the past. Uh, as a government, we've been investing a lot in disaster mitigation and taking all sorts of other steps to make sure that the country is better prepared. Uh, but when we see these extreme events 
occur, it does place immense pressure on the Australian Defence Force and all of our emergency systems. Uh, so that's why at the moment we've been doing a consultation process around what kind of resources we need at the federal level to be able to cope with this new future that we are entering with climate change. And are you solidifying uh, around that idea of possibly having a, a new reserve force? Um, that will all be decided over the course of this year. Uh, we really finalised the consultation period at the end of last year and we expect to be publishing all the submissions and that kind of thing before too long. Um, we have in the meantime, though, taken some steps by investing heavily in a non-profit organisation called Disaster Relief Australia. That's a veteran-led organisation uh, that we are engaging right now on the Gold Coast uh, and we'll be deploying more of those people into far north Queensland as we have in other parts of the country to help with some of that work that has traditionally been done by the ADF. Uh, we've made clear that we will always make the ADF available to the states when they're needed. Uh, and in fact, just yesterday, the Prime Minister announced another deployment of ADF personnel to assist with the recovery in far north Queensland. But we do need to supplement them with other resources like Disaster Relief Australia, and we'll give consideration to further measures over the course of this year. Minister, thank you very much for joining AM. Thanks, Kim. And Murray Watt is the Federal Minister for Agriculture and Emergency Management. Flooding is easing across much of Victoria. As the clean-up begins, there's relief from those who've escaped major damage, as any guest reports. With his house and service station business affected in previous floods, Justin Cleary is glad the water has stopped rising in his hometown of Rochester in Victoria's north. Mostly relief. Um, we uh, were a little jittery given what happened uh, 15 months ago. Um, but the water's come up. It's still water out in the township uh, in the lower streets. But, uh, yes, relief generally. Um, didn't want to have to go through another big clean-up. And what's the feeling like uh, around town? I, I understand you've been involved in, in helping out? Uh, yeah, pretty organised. Um, as a community, I think the stress levels were quite high. Uh, today, everyone's quite content and relieved that um, the flood levels were, were, were where were predicted. Almost 1,000 Rochester homes flooded in 2022 and an assessment is underway into how many are affected this time. To the south, residents of flooded homes in towns including Yay and Seymour are facing the devastating clean-up. While Greater Bendigo Mayor Andrea Metcalf says Goonong was hit hard. They're tired, uh, but they have pulled together as com as a community really well. Um, and like for some of those CFA volunteers, they'd sandbag their properties, gone out to help others, and come home and find find that their own homes have been flooded as well. She's awaiting an official assessment of the extent of the damage. Oh, look, it'd be in the double digits, you know, maybe 20 properties here, 15 properties there, um, you know, that have been impacted. So, you know, we're hearing that anecdotally, um, but we, it's better when we've actually got that data through. Meanwhile, Councillor Metcalf is lobbying the Victorian government for more recovery funding. We've had set three significant rain events since Christmas Day. State governments made a declaration uh, that the Boxing Day storms and flooding are to be treated as one event. We'll be following up with them. We weren't one of the cities that were named, um, so we're following up with them. But we also want to make sure that the 2nd of January event is included as well for that declaration. So if we can access uh, funds uh, through them, that will help us in that um, recovery process much quicker. 
The threat of flash flooding has eased in parts of Victoria, but rivers and creeks continue rising in some northern areas. And in guest reporting. What could be a defining moment for US political history has been unfolding in a court in Washington. It's a landmark legal case about whether former President Donald Trump can be held criminally liable for the actions he took to overturn his 2020 election loss. North America correspondent Barbara Miller has been watching the proceedings. Barb, can you outline the main points presented to the court by the prosecutors and Donald Trump's lawyers? Well, Donald Trump's lawyer told the court that the former president couldn't be held criminally liable for any actions he took while still in the White House because those were official acts in his role as president. And he said furthermore that because Donald Trump was impeached but then acquitted in the impeachment trial, that also meant uh, that he couldn't now uh, face criminal prosecution. The lawyer, Dean John Sawyer, said that um, if he were to be prosecuted, that would open up a Pandora's box that could shake the country and there would be cycles of recrimination. Um, now, one of the three judges who's hearing this appeal, she really pressed him on what he was saying and she used the example of a president uh, ordering a SEAL 6 team to assassinate a political rival and she said... Are you saying um, that in that scenario uh, that a president or former president couldn't face criminal proceedings? Uh, Dean John Sawyer said, well, they'd have to be first impeached. Now, this idea of the SEAL 6 team and the assassination was taken up by the prosecution. Uh, Prosecutor James Pierce saying it was an extraordinarily frightening scenario, the idea uh, that a president who had not been impeached couldn't face criminal prosecution. He rejected the idea that any uh, criminal prosecution would result in a tit-for-tat situation in the future. He said that this was a fundamentally unprecedented situation um, with Donald Trump. Now, Barb, Donald Trump was in court, even though the Iowa caucuses are next week, which are the first time that Republicans will vote for who they want to be their presidential candidate at this year's election. Does a case like this help Donald Trump's political campaign? I think the fact that he was there suggests he very much thinks it does and all the evidence would suggest so far these criminal cases against him and there are four criminal cases have helped his campaign and have helped him fundraise. So the fact that we saw him in court today I think shows that throughout this year while he's still a candidate we're going to see his political and his legal calendars overlapping and it's also an indication of just how much traction the former president thinks he's getting from this argument that all these cases against him are a political witch hunt. He spoke following the hearing from a nearby hotel. It's the opening of a Pandora's box and it's a very very sad thing that's happened with this whole situation. Uh, When they talk about uh, threat to democracy, that's your real threat to democracy. And I feel that as a president, you have to have immunity, very simple. And if you don't, as an example, if uh, this case were lost on immunity and I did nothing wrong. Now, we're expecting a decision pretty quickly uh, from the court, but either way, this case is likely to end up in the Supreme Court. And that means that it's very likely to delay the planned start of the January 6th case. It's still set down 
for March, but that date very, very much in doubt because of all these legal proceedings. Barbara Miller in Washington. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers.